Bibles, open them up to Daniel chapter 3. So, uh, that verse, uh, the the chorus we were just singing, God will take care of you. I think that fits well uh, with our passage in Daniel chapter 3. We're in a series in the book of Daniel. Uh, The series is entitled, God's Sovereignty is Our Security. All right, could you regurgitate that back to me? What was the title of the series? All right, very good. And so today's message uh, is entitled, Daniel's Friends. So in Daniel chapter 3, we have one of those uh, familiar uh, Bible stories that maybe if you uh, have a children's Bible and uh, read that to your children at night or even give them a children's Bible with pictures, this is probably one of those stories that will be in that children's Bible. And so some of you have grown up Uh, knowing this story, so I'm not going to be presenting something new to you today as far as the basic narrative. By the way, pastors can't do that if they're faithful, right? They they can't make up Bible stories on their own. Even though sometimes I try to do that, you know, I I get uh, Moses in the ark instead of Noah, but, you know, Moses was in an ark, just a smaller one, all right? And uh, so one time I uh, really messed it up on a Sunday night message when I was uh, given the opportunity to first start preaching. I had, um, as Jesus lifted up the serpents in the wilderness, I had the American Medical Association symbol in my mind. And, uh, but that's on the side of ambulances. That's not in the book of Numbers. And uh, so Moses only lifted up one serpent. And so I was, you know, a deacon came up and challenged me on that after the service. So... Yeah, you can get some things wrong, but this one's pretty familiar to us. And so let's just go ahead and read the first few verses here. Uh, Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was threescore cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent to gather together uh, the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, uh, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the province were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before uh, the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 4. Uh, Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, um, in nations and languages, that when, uh, that time, what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, uh, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye shall fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whoso faileth, uh, uh, boweth that down, falleth not down, and worship not shall uh, that hour in that instant be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. Verse 7. Therefore at that time uh, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, and all kinds of music, and all the people of the nations and uh, languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. All right, so... How many of you have noticed that it seems like there's a little bit of repetition taking place in this song, or this uh, narrative here? You catch that? 
All right, so the political offices are repeated, the musical instruments are repeated. So you're also going to find Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, their names are mentioned at least 13 times in this chapter. Now, God doesn't waste his breath. When he breathed out the word of God, that's what the word in inspiration means. Every word is inspired by God. He breathed it out. Yes, God did say all these musical instruments multiple times. He said Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego multiple times. He listed um, the phrase, the image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Uh, yes, God did say all of that multiple times. Why in the world would God do such a thing? Well, repetition is a, an aid to learning. How many of you parents trained your children so well that when they heard you say something the first time, they just jumped and did it immediately. <laughs> All right. Yeah, right. So you've had to, as a parent, tell your kids something multiple times. It aids them, right? It helps them. Well, God is going to tell you things multiple times today to help you. Now, one of the, the things that you're going to see today is God's sovereignty on display. And when God keeps repeating things, he wants you to catch the importance of his sovereignty. And that will be just stated one time. Now, uh, this is a very interesting narrative. This is called a provision miracle, or a provision miracle narrative. A narrative is a story, and the miracle that takes place is here's this announcement. The king has set up this huge image, which is 90 feet tall by uh, six cubits wide. It's about nine feet wide. So this is uh, a very tall statue. Could have been overlaid with gold. Who knows? Maybe it was solid gold. Um, he's commanding everybody throughout the world to bow down and worship it. And upon the pain of death... That if they don't bow down, they're thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. So we're going to see that Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they do not bow down. And they are thrown into a fiery furnace. But we'll see God's sovereignty at work. And maybe you'll learn something about the sovereignty of God today. But it's a provision miracle. It's a miraculous event that results in the people, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, receiving something that they did not previously have. And we'll see that that is a faith that was uh, more precious than gold, even though it was tried by fire. Now, they were courageous, and they said, no, we're not going to do this thing. But then there was some uncertainty in their mind as to the outcome of all of this. So chapter 3 then has another literary technique where there are multiple voices, right? So I'm not going to try to read like a narrator today and have five different voices to you, all right? I don't want to sound like Smeagol, all right, and um, have all these different voices go out for you. But here are the five different voices or characters that are in the story. King Nebuchadnezzar, the herald, uh, you'll have... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, you will have 
the accusers of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then in the conclusion, uh, you will have um, just God's voice alone being heard as to what we really should be getting from the story. So it's filled with repetition. But now, here's a, there, there, there are little twists in this story. All right? There seems to be two independent stories running, um, and, and then all of a sudden, they, they seem to be against one another, but then at the last of the chapter, they, they, they merge, they slam together to answer a question. So let's keep reading. Um, but let's pick it up in verse 15, specifically. All right. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's talking to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, Now, if you be ready, that at what time you hear the sound of the, of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, um, and all of the, the, the musical things there, all right, and all kinds of music, uh, ye fall down and worship the image which I have commanded well with you, but if ye worship not, ye shall be uh, at that same hour thrown into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Now notice the last part of this verse. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? So... This is the challenge, this is the thrust of this story. Who is that God that is so powerful that will deliver you out of my hands? After all, I conquered your city. I took away treasures out of the the worship center there in Jerusalem. I conquered your God. I'm mightier than your God. And so this was the the mindset of the ancient kings. When they defeated another nation, well, their gods were greater than the gods of the nations they defeated. So this is the mindset of Nebuchadnezzar. I'm it. I'm the world's superpower. Who's going to deliver you from my hand? There's nothing greater than all of this. But yet that theme, that, that independent story, uh, will come crashing and, and merge together at the end of the chapter. So let's just jump down to the end of the chapter. And look at verse 29 and 30. Therefore I make a decree, this is Nebuchadnezzar's voice, that every people, nation, and language would speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill because there is what? No other God that what? Can deliver. That was his question. That was his boast, his statement. What God is there that's going to deliver you out of my hand? He's not thinking that there's any possibility that there is such a God. Well, he gets to meet that God in this story. And so he ends up praising him. So there's no other God that can deliver after this sort. Verse 30, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, in the province of Babylon. So these come merging together at the end of the story. Now Daniel is actually not in this one, in this story. Um, Maybe he was away uh, on a business trip. We don't know, all right? Um, We know that 
if he was there, he would not have bowed down and he would have been included with his friends. So he's not mentioned in the narrative. He's not mentioned in the story. So today the emphasis is on the Daniel's three friends. And that's the title of the message, Daniel's three friends. So as we go through now, are we going to have PowerPoint slides back there at the, at the table? All right, we do. All right, so the big idea, God's sovereignty is our security. But there are some expectations that we can have in, in our lives today that were also in this passage here. The first one is an expectation of persecution. Now, Nebuchadnezzar made it clear. I made this image, bow down and worship it. If you don't, into the fiery furnace. That's what you should expect to be the outcome if you don't worship uh, the image that I've set up. Well, there's also an expectation for us today and if you would like, you can take your Bibles and turn over to this passage. It's 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, 1 Peter 4, 12. Christians should expect uh, persecution in the world today if we're not going to bow down to the world's philosophy and the world's way of doing things. So 1 Peter 4, 12. Think it not strange concerning, what, the fiery trial which is to try you. So, over and over again in the New Testament, uh, we're told to anticipate or to expect persecution. All those that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, persecution doesn't have to be martyrdom. Um, it can be just simply being belittled or ostracism in, in your home, um, people thinking you're crazy because you're a Christian, right? Crazy because you've given a Sunday morning to go to church. I mean, there's so many other things that can be done on a Sunday morning. You're crazy for going to church, right? Um, so there's different things where we can expect persecution. So they were to expect persecution if they did not uh, bow down and worship this image. Now, there's a, a lapse of time between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Uh, you remember Daniel's in, uh, interpretation of the prophecy, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, that Nebuchadnezzar was uh, the head of this image of gold. And so you could probably see why Nebuchadnezzar has made this golden image. Now, it may not be his own image, but it's an, an, an image that in some way is tied to his ego, right? Because if you don't bow down and worship this, then who's going to deliver you out of my hand? So whatever worship system, whatever that was all about, it was definitely tied to Nebuchadnezzar's ego, right? It's about him. So to not worship was to insult the king. And um, so some things have passed about 18 to 20 years between chapter 2 and chapter 3. And in that time, Nebuchadnezzar has marched through the ancient Near East, conquering kingdom after kingdom. I mean, he defeated Egypt. He defeated uh, Tyre and Sidon. It took him years to do that. Uh, this little coastal island town off of Lebanon, he had to build uh, basically a, a, a sea ramp to go out there and to capture that city. Um, he eventually defeated uh, Jerusalem in, in three different consecutive stages and 
So the, the city of Babylon is filling up with captives from all over the world. And so success has gone to this man's head. Nobody's stopping him. Nobody can stand before him. And so he's thinking, I'm it. I'm the greatest. You know, who can deliver you out of my hand? So um, even Daniel has told me that I am the top of that image. All right? There, everything else is below me. So he's, he's quite lifted up in his arrogance and his success. Um, you know, this is just my own personal thoughts, but I think that there are a lot of political entities in our nation um, whose political success lifts them up in pride. And uh, they're going to be due for a great humbling, right? If not in this lifetime, then when they meet God. But um, it makes political leaders all that more willful to do things, such as Nebuchadnezzar being very willful here. And so um, these three young men are going to show us today uh, how to trust God instead of looking at man and having fear. Okay, so uh, let's look at verse 8, and uh, we're going to see what happens here. Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused who? The Jews. All right, now it could have been all the Jews, but why are they accusing Jews? What do you know about the Jewish religion and why the Chaldeans would be accusing them? How about the Ten Commandments? Am I jogging your memory? Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. You shall not make unto yourself any graven image. You shall not bow down yourself to them of anything that is in the heavens above, on the earth, or in the sea. All right? You, you don't do that. So Jewish people uh, are not going to bow down to a representation of a God. So this is why they're having this accusation brought about. Now, who are the Chaldeans here in uh, verse 8? Well, it could be an ethnic group, um, but most likely this is referring to the priestly class. The, the priests of uh, Marduk, which was the god of Babylon. And um, so remember, they're, they're at this point in a position of having to respect the Jews, Daniel, because Daniel's been promoted. And through Daniel's promotion, at the end of chapter 2, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were promoted. So they're, they're kind of envious of, of these four men. They're envious of the Jews, and, and they notice and observe about them that they have this exclusive claim. There, there's no other God like the Jewish God. They know that they don't worship idols. And so at a convenient time, they bring that up to accuse them. All right? Now, this is very interesting. In um, verse 8, the Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. That word accused literally means to eat the flesh. So they're coming to the king eating up the Jewish uh, people, eating up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, not literally, all right, but figuratively. Valicious maligning and accusations, railing against them, uh, very vocally uh, disturbed um, by these Jewish people, not bowing down 
to this image. And so notice with me, uh, verse 9, they spake and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. So here's their voice. Can't you just imagine how they're trying to earn favor with the king? Oh, king, live forever. You know, we don't want anyone else but you. Always be with us, right? Um, now, notice verse 10. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that um, hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sacrament, the psaltery, and it goes on, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And uh, whoso uh, falleth not down and worshipeth, that should be cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. All right, now they're coming to the point. The king's thinking to himself, why are they buttering me up? All right. Well, there are certain Jews... You've given this great command. Now there are certain people that are disobedient to it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let's just get it out. All right. Ah, now I know what their motive is. All right. Now you would think maybe there's some loyalty upon his part towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But no, let's notice what happens. Okay. Um, verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, uh, in rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought those... Uh, Men before the king, verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Uh, do you not uh, observe my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? So, is this really right? I mean, are you daring defy me? I made this decree. I said, are you really going against what I've said? Can this really be true? Are, are you that bold and audacious that you're going to defy me? You see, this is kind of how the world thinks today, right? Christianity's okay as long as you don't start claiming exclusive truth, right? I mean, after all, you see those bumper stickers, right? The, the one that gets under my skin a little bit is coexist, right? has the cross and has the crescent moon, has the star of David, has the, you know, all the different religions there. And um, I've seen a counter to that. Um, it says they can't all be right, right? Uh, because there's so many contradictory claims amongst all of those different religions. So pluralism is tolerant as long as you don't rock the boat. And that's how our society is today. They're, they're expecting you, just go along with everything, and it's all good. You can even have what you want, but please don't rock the boat. Don't disturb the peace of what's going on around here, all right? And as soon as a Christian dares to stand up and say, there is no other God, there is no other way of salvation, ah, fury breaks out, right? Or if Christians say, hey, we want to be included too. A separation of church and state. <laughs> you know, it's like some vampire phrase that they throw out at us right away, you know. And uh, so it's great. I mean, so here there's no problem with having your God as long as he's on the shelf with all the other gods. 
it's gel, it's cool, there's no problem here. But now, do you really dare defy me? Are you saying that you won't go along with this? Well, let's notice what they say, all right? So verse, uh, we read verse 15, so let's go down to 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, um, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us um, out of thy hand, O king. But, look at verse 18, but if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Wow. We're not careful. We're not going to try to parse this. We're not going to try to to go around the bush several times and, and, and do a linguistic dance with you, all right? Try to make it sound like we're going to go along with this, but when really we're not, all right? They just come right out and say, we're not going to worship your gods. We're not going to do this. I wish there were more Christians like that in our society. They just would flat out say, that's wrong. That's not what God wants. I think the world would be a lot better off knowing that there's a God, a righteous God, instead of Christians trying to apologize for their God. And just come right out and say what God says in the Bible. And so this is um, very interesting when we, when we stop and, and look at this now, all right? There's something bigger than just this narrative. And it starts in the book of Genesis, it runs through the Bible, and it comes to a conclusion in the book of Revelation. So if you want to just follow through, I'm going to mention these passages to you, but starting in Genesis chapter 10, verse 10, there's a man by the name of Nimrod. He's described as a rebel against God, and he built a city. Guess what the name of that city was? Babylon, all right? Now, the name Babylon means the gates of heaven. So this is Nimrod, the rebel against God, building a city named Babylon, the gates of heaven. Now, wait a minute. A rebel against God is not going to make it into heaven. And so then you, you see all the way through the Old Testament, that Babylon becomes a symbol of humanity's rebellion against God. Babylon becomes a symbol of false worship, whether it be humanism or idolatry. It just becomes that symbol. So let's uh, look at Uh, some of this in Revelation, all right? Let's go to Revelation 18, verses 4 and 5. Keep uh, your bulletin or a piece of paper here, and we'll just look at what this concludes in Revelation chapter 18.
Revelation 18, verses 4 and 5. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. So, here you see the, the, the symbolic city of Babylon. And what does God tell his people that they need to do in relationship to this city? Come out. Get out of there. Uh, because God is going to judge this system, this false way of doing things. You know, there are really two paths in life. There's God's path, and then there's the path of humanity. Jesus says, straight is the way and narrow is the way that leads to life eternal, but broad is the way that leads to destruction. Few be there that find the way that leads to righteousness and everlasting life, but broad is the way, and many beyond that, and they will perish. The world is rushing headlong to hell today, worshiping humanism, worshiping false gods. We were talking in uh, children's Sunday school uh, about Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There's just one true living God. But in India... They have gods in the millions, like the stars in the heavens above, almost under every tree. And uh, then you think about the different nations of the world and all the different religions. And then you add into that the religion of humanism, the worship of mankind. Don't you dare stand in the way of humanism. That's what America worships, right? Um, scientific infallibility, okay? Now, listen, I'm not against medical science. I'm just against saying it's infallible, all right? Um, this is the way that the world looks at things today. It's infallible way to live life. How dare you? go against the status quo. Uh, We're trying to make a great civilization here where everybody is so wonderfully included and so forth. And how dare you say that there's going to be exclusion in God's sight? And so that becomes anathema. So this is uh, going to all be judged. And God doesn't want you to be in that system. God wants you to be on the straight and narrow way. God wants you to be living separate from the world today. So, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. The world is not the globe. The world is not the number of people living on the globe. When God says, love not the world, he's talking about the value systems of the world. And unfortunately, this is a problem for Christians. This is a problem... In America, this is a problem in Hollister. 
A lot of Christian churches getting together today that have made some compromises and they're in love with the world and they're bringing the world into their corporate worship. Now, let's not set ourselves up as so superior here today because, you know, we're the chosen church here in Hollister, right? What are you brought in today into the corporate setting in your heart? That love for the world. The desires of your flesh. Your wanter, right? And you've yielded to your own choice. Just two choices on the shelf. Pleasing God or pleasing self. And so that's where this really is. And so they're saying, we don't need to be careful here. We already know the answer. We're not going to do it. And we know that our God will deliver us. But just in case he doesn't, we want you to know we're still not going to do this thing. Now, is, is the sovereignty of God a promise to keep us out of trouble or adversity or uh, tragedy? Is that the sovereignty of God? Is that, the pro- is that what we mean by the sovereignty of God? No. All right? Uh, that's not what is meant here, certainly. They say, we know our God can do this. So the sovereignty of God is not this promise that we'll uh, always see the wonderful end to you know, our situation that we're in. No, it might end in tragedy. I mean, after all, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they did end up in the fiery furnace, did they not? All right. But here's God's promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord is my inheritance. The Lord is our portion. And so he did not leave them alone in the fiery furnace. In a minute, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar exclaim, hey guys, can I count to to three? Because I'm having a problem. I'm getting four. Did we not throw three into the fiery furnace? But I see four. What's going on? And so he's checking with his advisors. But they're not going to be careful to answer him. They're going to reject idolatry. They're going to reject the king. And they're not going to worship this. So let's look at the next expectation. All right? Here's our second point. Stay with me. We'll we'll get through this. Believers can expect preservation. God may not keep us out of the furnace, but he will go with us and bring us through for his glory. I want you to uh, take your Bibles, and I want you to look at Isaiah. Let me find my reference here, make sure I'm getting it right. It's Isaiah uh, 40, uh, my glasses are not with me today. It's either 43-2 or 48-2, but I'm going to read it to you, because I've got it in big font, bold type up here so I can see it. When thou passest through the waters... I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. What was God's promise? I will be with thee. Whether in the flood or the fire, sometimes we feel like circumstances, you know, when it rains it pours. Well, maybe the the dam broke. And it's all hitting us at once, right? Uh, Maybe it's a fiery trial that we're going through. 
God's sovereignty doesn't always promise the rosy outcome, but what God's sovereignty does promise is he's always going to be with us. Now remember, this is a provision miracle narrative that the recipients have something that they have at the end that they didn't have at the beginning. And so we'll look at what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego receive at the end that they did not have as they went into this. So they were not careful to answer the king. They just went ahead and straight out said it, okay? And um, so we see what happens here, all right? So the king becomes uh, enraged. So let's go back to Daniel chapter 3 now. Uh, I remember uh, being a camp counselor one summer, and we had uh, a speaker who uh, challenged the kids with this uh, chapter, the story, every week. And um, just his portrayal of the king uh, becoming furious and angry, um, I don't think I want to share it with you, but it was quite dramatic, you know, the, the smoke rolling out of his ears and his eyes turning red and fire, you know and uh, all of these wonderful things that he acted out and had the kids in stitches. But uh, you can fill in the, the things here in your own imagination. So Daniel chapter 3, uh, let's look at the response then. And I thought I put a ribbon in here because I told you all to do the same thing. I did. It's just the wrong color I'm remembering. All right, Daniel chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 19. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should uh, bind these men and heat the furnace seven times uh, more than it was ever heated before. And so he commanded that they be tied up in verse 20, and uh, they were bound up. And uh, then it says here in verse 21, these men were bound up, uh, their coats and uh, all of their hosen, what they were wearing, okay, and their hats and their other garments, uh, whereof that went into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. So, years ago, I, his brother is still alive in the Lord. Um, his name is Fred, but his nickname was Red. Uh, because when he became angry or frustrated, it, it, it was so funny. It was like watching the thermometer rise. Just, all right. And uh, from, from his neck to, to his head, you could tell when he was, was getting frustrated or angry, and he would literally turn red. So that was his, his nickname. Uh, and so I can imagine here Nebuchadnezzar just turning red. The form of his visage changed. Uh, he's full of fear. He's enraged. And so you think of someone who needs anger management help? Here it is. All right? He needs anger management help. And so he commands them, and they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And they were bound, all right? And all the detail that's there, the, the way that they were dressed, all of these things are repeated again in great detail. Um, because what we're going to see is, look down at verse 27. Is that the fire, this phrase is mentioned right in the middle of the verse, the fire had no power, nor was a hair on their head singed. Now, this is quite interesting. Perhaps this is the kennel or the furnace that was used to purify the gold for the image. This was no small wood stove in your living room. 
okay? This was a huge commercial kind of furnace. And most likely it says that they were thrown in from the top and they fell into the fire. So they're landing on the coals. Now, I remember as a child, uh, our home was built in 1890 and uh, it was a little breezy in the wintertime in Illinois when it got uh, several degrees below zero. So we had a kerosene furnace and uh, one day I came home from school and the house was just freezing cold because the wind was blowing outside and it was blowing through the house. And uh, I had on nylon pants and I came right up next to that uh, kerosene furnace and literally my pant legs just melted off, right? As that fire was hot and I was cold and I wanted to get warm, all right? And uh, as a child, uh, I used to sleep in front of the register, and my parents would come down in the morning, and they would be so mad because I would have a blanket over the register catching all the heat for downstairs, all right? And uh, so I love hot things, um, but fire can actually burn you, right? You know that. And so they're supposed to be burned here. Matter of fact, the heat would have been so intense that they would have died immediately, not from the fire, but just the heat, uh, or the smoke. I mean, there's, there's several ways to die besides third-degree burns, all right, or being turned into an ash pile. And so all the way through this is a miracle. The fire had no power. Now, the king throws them in there, and he sees them, uh, they were bound. So the ropes burned off of their bodies, but not a hair on their body was singed. That's pretty incredible for hairy army men, right? And um, so probably being very devout Jews, they probably had beards too, right? So nothing on them even smells like smoke. There's not a singed hair on them anywhere, but the ropes are gone, and they're walking around in the furnace freely. They're not bound. The king notices and observes this. And then he asks his counselors, he says, Did we not throw three men into the furnace? But yet I see four. Now I want you uh, to notice uh, his reactions here uh, to this. So he says, And the fourth has the appearance of the Son of God. All right? So some people believe that this is the existence of Christ uh, in the Old Testament appearing as an angel. Now, remember, Jesus wasn't created at Christmas time, all right? A body was made for him. Jesus Christ is eternal, the same age and duration as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So it's possible that this is Christ, or it's possible that God just sent an angel to be with them. But I think more likely that it's God himself uh, in the person of Christ because of the promises in the book of Isaiah. When you go through the waters, they'll not overwhelm you. When you go through the fire, I will be with you. God kept his promise. And there was that deliverance for them. And we do see the sovereignty of God in a provision miracle taking place here. And so the king was convinced and eager then to do something about this. So let's uh, go to the end of chapter 3 and uh, pick it up in verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake, and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that did what? Trusted in him. See, that's all we can do. We can't navigate and control the outcomes. Because we're not God. But we can trust in God. And let him determine the outcomes. So that's important that Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that they had just simple faith. that They trusted in God. And sent his angel and delivered thy servants that trusted in him. And have changed the king's word. And uh, yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship uh, any god except their own god. So he's realizing that they were right. They said, we're not going to be careful. We're not going to worship any other gods. We're just going to worship our god. We're not going to add Jesus to uh, the god shelf. And that's what pluralism wants us to do in our culture today is add Jesus to the God shelf. No, Jesus doesn't get added to the God shelf with the others. He is alone. Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord your God. Beside me there is none other. There is no other God. So verse 29, he makes the decree that truly no one else can speak amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, unfortunately... Nebuchadnezzar, I don't think, has come to repentance and faith, all right? But he has come to a position where he recognizes the God of the Jews as just being just as valid as his God. So you can't talk bad against him, all right? So here's how it worked, all right? Um, just as they were under, everybody in the kingdom was under the command to bow down and worship the golden image. Now they're under an equal command where they cannot disparage the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they're on equal footing. I, I think that's beautiful. It shows us how to act in a pluralist society. We don't have to be subservient. We don't have to yield to the pluralism of our day. We have the same rights and the same blessings that we can go out and worship our God. And that's what he's saying. They have the right to do that. And so the king then promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so that's our third point in this series. Yes, God's sovereignty is our security, but we can expect promotion. So a miraculous event that results in the beneficiary having something that they did not previously have, a faith that is more precious than gold, even though it was tried by fire. You see, they said, we're not going to do this. We know that our God is able to deliver us. But they went from theory to actual practice. They went from mental possibilities to actually possessing that kind of faith. So their faith was rewarded. God did deliver them. And their faith was stronger because they actually had that personal experience. See, here's how this applies to some of you. You've heard about the sovereignty of God. You've heard that God can answer prayer. You've heard all of these claims about God, but yet you have never personally experienced that for yourself. Well, you don't have the kind of faith that God wants you to have yet. And 
when you go through the fiery trial, God is with you. And you come out of the fiery trial with your faith being more precious than that of gold, though it be tried by fire. Now, perhaps some of you have never come to faith in Jesus. Today is the day to come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's pretty simple, all right? Um, we recognize that God has created us as individuals, and so as creator, he has a claim on our life. His claim is that we trust his way of salvation, not our way or any other way. And there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Just the name of Jesus. So we admit that we're a sinner and that we need a Savior. God calls us a sinner, tells us we need a Savior. So then we believe, we trust in God's provision of Jesus on the cross. That Jesus died to pay for your sin. He solved your sin problem. You can't. And then C, you call upon the name of the Lord, expressing the faith that's already in your heart. That you're going to turn away from self-reliance, you're going to turn away from anything else, and you're going to turn exclusively to Christ and Christ alone. And for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So perhaps there's an individual in a room today, that's where you need to begin. Lord, I'm a sinner, I can't save myself. I believe that you sent your son to die for me on the cross. Please be my savior. I trust in what you did for me. Amen. And the Bible says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's God's promise. He will save you. He will then be with you in your life from that moment forward because he will give you the Holy Spirit and he will never leave you. But then there are some here today that perhaps want to run out from a trial and to get away from a trial. Um, but Peter challenged the new Christians in 2 Peter chapter 1 to develop perseverance. That is, to stay under the trial and to let have patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting or lacking nothing. God doesn't always call us to run from the trials. God calls us just to stay with him. And so, believer, are you walking with God? Is deliverance become your idol? Now, I know that that's a human need, and God knows that too. God's not so uncompassionate that he doesn't hear our prayer requests. But he's met everything that you already need in his presence, in his person. Know that he's with you in your fiery trial. And what you can receive is the provision of the promises in his word. And you will then know firsthand in the experience of your life the presence of God in your life. You'll receive comfort. You'll receive sometimes his healing or his deliverance. And then your faith will be that more.